0: This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Thank you for coming tonight. My name is Susan Solar Everingham, and I'm the director of RAND's Pittsburgh office. Today, we have the um, thrill of having a longtime RAND colleague, Bruce Bennett, senior international and defense researcher at RAND, who works primarily on topics related to strategy, force planning, and counterproliferation, and is RAND's premier expert on the issue of North Korea. Um, We also are very honored to have our very own Pittsburgh colleague, uh, Laura Baldwin, a senior economist here at RAND and associate director of RAND's National Security Research Division, Um, to be our moderator and to get the conversation going. Um, The format tonight is similar to what we've done before. Um, Bruce is going to give us a brief presentation to get us up to speed on what's been going on with North Korea. Um, And uh, then Laura is going to join the conversation, and Bruce and Laura will talk for a short while. So, Bruce, let me invite you to the podium.
1: Thank you, Susan. Uh, In terms of the subject we're going to talk about, I'm going to try and focus on where we are with North Korea this year. Lots of history behind that. I'll touch some on the history, but try and help you leave tonight with an idea of what has been happening, how complex this situation is, and what are the options that we potentially have available for us as we move ahead. Those are the kinds of things we like to talk about with the government because we can generate ideas that maybe might be helpful. And note that we don't just work with the U.S. government. I've made, at this stage, I think, about 107 trips to South Korea. Uh, I have much better access to the South Korean government than I do to the U.S. government (laughs) for reasons that I'll talk about at some point here. And so we try to influence where we can, as Susan said, to improve the situation for all people, but also to make sure that from our research... We cover with a broader public environment what is going on. So I think this week I've now done about a dozen media interviews. Uh, We try to do those regularly to help people understand what is happening. So let me start with this. First of all, we have to understand that things have been changing with North Korea. Back in early 2015, Dr. Sig Hecker, who is a former Los Alamos director now a pro- professor at the Stanford University, he went to China to meet with Chinese nuclear scientists. Chinese nuclear scientists have almost always downplayed the North Korean nuclear program, said they didn't think the North Koreans could do it, that they were not very capable, and he was blown away when the Chinese told him they thought at that time North Korea already had 20 nuclear weapons. By the end of 2016, they would have 40 and Pushing out, by 2020, they'd have about 80 or so. Now, that compares to estimates done by an American physicist, David Albright, who drew a low-end, a medium-end, and a high-end estimate about the same time and said he thought that they were going to progress roughly like that, depending upon the details of the North Korean program and other situations. Now, you compare all of those and you say, if I'm looking today, I've got to be thinking that North Korea might have 20 to 50 nuclear weapons, and that's a lot, a lot of weapons. One nuclear weapon going off in a big American city, probably leave 100,000 or so people killed, 100,000 or so seriously injured hundreds of thousands modestly injured. This is a serious subject when you start to get up into these numbers. Now, Kim Jong-un probably can't deliver a nuclear weapon to the United States yet, but he likely can to Korea and Japan, our allies. And he's promised this year to develop an ICBM, test one, that can deliver to the United States. So that's part of why we're concerned right now. North Korea isn't exactly mild on nuclear weapons either. You can see here over some of the history, the second bullet there, in negotiations in 1994, North Korea said they're going to turn Seoul into a sea of fire, the capital of South Korea. Now, you could potentially do that with artillery, but hey, a nuclear weapon really sounds like a sea of fire. And that's why they then talk about a nuclear sea of fire in many of their subsequent discussions. They're very clear that they're posing this threat. Now, some of this is clearly bluster, clearly for coercive or deterrence purposes. But how long can you say these things before you start to believe it if you're the North Korean leadership? So I was talking about the effects of a weapon. This is a part of City of Seoul. Uh, If you look... The Blue House of South Korea, the presidential residence, I'm sorry, is right about there. So I assumed that they would try to target the Blue House. Their missiles have historically been considered not very accurate, so maybe they'd go off and maybe they wouldn't go off in that area. And I've assumed they go off a little bit to the west with a 10 kiloton weapon, roughly Hiroshima-sized weapon, about 340,000 people who would be killed or seriously injured by that attack. Economic costs over 10 years, yeah, somewhere around a trillion dollars. So people who complain about the cost of missile defenses being in the tens of billions of dollars over 20 years, I say, well, you forget what you're trying to defend against and what you're trying to prevent. And what happens if they're bigger or smaller? North Korea's first nuclear test in 2006 was about one kiloton. And the scientists said, oh, golly, that's a fizzle. You know, one kiloton, that's really small. Well, okay, but one kiloton weapon would kill about 90,000 people in Seoul. That's not a fizzle to me. So maybe for the physicists, they would not think it was very good. And then if you look at the higher end, in, two, in 2016, last year in January, North Korea did their fourth nuclear test it appears they were trying to get about a 50 kiloton weapon yield from the depth at which they buried that weapon. And yes, we can roughly estimate what those depths are. They want to bury them deep enough so that the gases from the explosion don't vent out into the atmosphere, because if they do, we can determine a lot about what happened. And they don't want us to have any intelligence on what they're doing beyond what they can control. So they wouldn't do that. We think 50 KT possible. About 900,000 people killed or seriously injured with that. The numbers go up significantly. Now you might say, well, but there are other weapons of mass destruction. What about biological weapons or chemical weapons? Those are much more uncertain. A biological or chemical weapon used for warfare purpose gets spread in the atmosphere. Depends upon which way the winds are blowing... Depends upon the atmospheric conditions, what happens. But you look at the bottom end of those estimates, and those are roughly 9-11. And the top end are much higher than 9-11. So even those things, and now people say, well, wait, wait a minute, a ton of chemical weapons. How will North Korea get a ton of chemical weapons into Seoul? Well, they have a multiple rocket launcher. It launches 22 rockets. One battery of those six launchers can put about two and a half tons of chemical weapons into Seoul. So one ton would be at the low end. They only have about 20 of those batteries within range of Seoul. The other thing you have to understand about North Korea is culture. In 1993... There was the first nuclear crisis in Korea. We discovered through the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, that North Korea was probably violating the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And the U.S. tried to get them to stop and put a lot of pressure on them. Kim Il-sung, the leader of North Korea at the time, called together all his senior military personnel. He asked them, if we have to go against the Americans in a war, can we win? Now, remember, these were North Korean military people. What would they say? We're going to win, yeah! But he then asked them, if we lose, what do we do? North Korean military guys were all smart enough to know that was a really good time to keep your mouth shut. But his son, Kim Jong-il, the father of the current leader, spoke up and said, if we lose, I will be sure to destroy the earth. What good is the earth without North Korea? Now, he can't destroy it with tanks and rifles, probably can't even destroy it with nuclear weapons and biological weapons, but he could sure do a whole lot of damage. And think about it, he said the earth, he did not exclude his ally China, and China knows it. This statement is posted in multiple places in Pyongyang as a rallying cry and reflective of the culture. In North Korea. If they go down, they want to take a lot of people with them. All right, so North Korea has only three nuclear weapons. Historically, they probably keep them for regime survival purpose, for a final coercive act. But if they get up to 50 nuclear weapons, that's a really different situation. They can start to think about using them for other purposes. To defend against this, South Korea has developed what they call their kill chain. They talk about it as a preemptive effort to destroy the North Korean missiles and nuclear weapons. So you can imagine the South Koreans are saying, well, if a war starts, we're going to try and take your whistles out and your nuclear weapons out. North Korea's natural response is, oh, no, 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 we're going to preempt your preemption. So you can imagine how stable situations can be from even a moderate crisis or a low-level conflict. You also understand nuclear weapons won't necessarily get withheld until the end of the war. If North Korea thinks it's in a use-it-or-lose-it position because the South is going to fire at them, classical from the strategic nuclear strategy, They're going to use their nuclear weapons, some of them anyway, from the very beginning. Now, what's been happening over the last number of years in terms of North Korean missiles? North Korean first missiles from back in the 1980s. And they tested those, not in very many numbers. And then they got up into the 1990s, almost none. In the 2000s, a couple of limited outbreaks... And in more recent years, the numbers have been significantly greater. Now, this is what happened under the different leadership. Notice Kim Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the current leader. um, They were testing to see how those weapons might work. Kim Jong-il didn't do much with ballistic missiles until he tried two major efforts to use them. And then you get Kim Jong-un, the current leader, and he has really ramped this whole thing up. And look at, we're now in 2017, he's already launched 12 missiles, and we're not even halfway through the year. This is a big change in the nature of the developing logic in North Korea. Now, You may have heard of the philosophy of strategic patience. That was the strategy during the Obama era. This said, look, North Korea has not been very fair in doing negotiations in the past. We're not going to negotiate and pay them for a third time for things we've already paid them twice in the past. So until North Korea gets serious about negotiation, we're not going to negotiate with them. Which could also be interpreted as look, this is really not going to go very far. we got a whole lot of other fish to fry around the world. Let's just wait this one out and see what happens. The problem is we've waited it out. Now that we may be on the verge of 20 or 30 or 50 nuclear weapons already, with the numbers heading higher, you've really got a problem that a president has to do something about. And that's what President Obama told President Trump when he was coming into office North Korea is a major crisis for him. So let's look at the last two years. Last two years, early in 2016, in January, North Korea did a nuclear test. Claimed it was a H-bomb, a fusion bomb. Um, Well, probably wasn't. It didn't blow up any bigger than the Hiroshima weapon, which was pure fission, pure uranium weapon. Um, But then he does... a Uh, satellite launch in February, and then after a UN Security Council resolution against him, he really goes off with the missile launches, and he continues that up until October. And then he stops for a while, and then he restarts this year. You might ask, well, why would he stop? The answer there is the time at which he stopped was when the South Korean president was having troubles politically, she then got impeached, and then there was an election. From a North Korean perspective, the last two South Korean presidents were conservative. They weren't going to help North Korea. They were going to put the screws to North Korea when it misbehaved. They wanted a liberal, a progressive president in South Korea, and I believe they weren't going to do anything to mess up those op- that chances until something different happened about ICBMs at the beginning of this year that we'll talk about next. So I think for several months, they held back, hoping to affect South Korean politics. They're not stupid. They know how politics work. What happened? January 1st, the leader of North Korea always does a New Year's Day address. In his New Year's Day address, he said, In 2017, I'm going to test an ICBM this year. Um, next day, President Trump tweets, it won't happen, he said. Okay, so you got the confrontation. Now you got to understand in North Korea, Kim Jong un can't say, well, okay, I'll back off a little bit. He would be interpreted as weak and potentially overthrown to do that kind of thing. In North Korea, when they get humanitarian aid from the outside world, they claim that it's tribute. The countries of the world are paying them tribute because they are so powerful, we're trying to buy them off. That's the culture of leadership in North Korea. Kim Jong-un is supposed to be basically a god and treated that way. And that leads to the culture. So President Trump takes him on. He's got to respond. In the next week... They then said, hey, we can launch an ICBM or other missiles from anywhere, anytime. Now, that got missed by most of the world, certainly by the media. You have to understand, in 2008, former Secretary of Defense William Perry and our immediate past Secretary of Defense Ash Carter wrote an article in the, in the Washington Post. They said, we cannot allow North Korea to develop an ICBM. It would be disastrous for the United States. So if they put one on a launch pad in North Korea, we need to go in and blow it up. Well, North Korea now has mobile launchers for their ICBMs. So they don't have to put it on a launch pad. We're not going to know where. We're not going to know when they're going to test. That's a North Korean victory. So Kim Jong-un came out just one week later saying, already got my first victory against the Americans. And remember in North Korea, America is the scapegoat for everything that goes wrong. The regime never does anything wrong. The economy in North Korea is poor because of the Americans. We're responsible for everything. And so it gives him a perfect source to blame. What then happened? Well, in February, he launches a new missile. It's a missile with new capabilities, and he claims it's the first stage of his ICBM. And what does he say? First thing he says is kind of a, nah, 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 to Trump, of, I already tested the first stage of my ICBM. He said it wouldn't happen. already did it. And then shortly thereafter, he says, oh, and by the way, the U.S. has no plan for stopping me from testing an ICBM this year. So we're just going to go ahead and do it. Now he's trying again to prove he's empowered. Third thing that happened this year that's of interest is he killed his, or he arranged to have killed his older half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, and that was a really significant event. So let me turn to that. Originally, Kim Jong-nam, who is more than 10 years older, I believe, than uh, Kim Jong-un, the current leader. He was the heir apparent, but he wasn't brutal like Kim Jong-un. He wasn't brutal like his dad, Kim Jong-il, so his dad started to lose confidence in him. And then Kim jong Nam tried to get in with his family to Japan on a forged, I think it was a Dominican passport, about 2002, and... um, He fell out of favor with dad. And dad, though, in that period of time, it was a capital offense in North Korea to talk about succession. Weren't allowed to talk about it because he had learned his dad had prepared him for 30 years to take over. And the last 10 years of his dad's life, Kim Il-sung's life, Kim Jong-il had been doing a lot of things that his dad didn't like. And he knew it. So he wasn't going to let that happen with his own sons. So he fell out of favor. Kim Jong-un finally is declared the successor in 2010. This is after a major medical problem for Kim Jong-il that occurred in 2008. (coughs) Took him two years to decide, well, we better declare my son the successor. And Kim Jong-un, as he was declared successor... He started collecting all of the North Korean elites who knew Kim Jong-nam, not were party with him or, you know, close to him, anybody who knew him and were killing him and sending their families off to the gulag because he did not want a Kim Jong-nam faction in North Korea. Um, He finished with the uncle in late 2013. There was no faction for the older brother in North Korea. Now, China had told Kim Jong-un, you lay off your older brother. Don't you dare attack him. So Kim Jong-un waits until his older brother is in Malaysia, not in Chinese jurisdiction, and he arranges to have him killed. That says to me he's a little bit paranoid, like maybe a whole lot. And that's important for interpreting what's going on. Now, Look, there are many experts on Korea who would disagree with me on that, but there are also a lot who would agree. We really don't know, but I think the evidence suggests that perspective. Now, he killed Kim Jong-nam with a chemical called VX, probably the most lethal standard warfare agent we're aware of. The V-series of agents was developed by the British in the early 1950s as a pesticide. People went out spraying the pesticide and discovered it wasn't a very good thing for the people spraying it. So the British military took it over, took it to Port and Downs, their chemical warfare facility, and started experimenting with it, came up with the most lethal variant, VX. It's like motor oil, almost no vapor off of it, so they could apply it to Kim Jong-nam And other people weren't going to be affected. interesting thing, the British also in the late 1950s did extensive human trials with VX. Unthinkable today, and they weren't trying to kill people, they were trying to suppress the chemical which controls the nervous system, which is what VX attacks. It only went up to 70% suppression. Turns out VX on the cheek where the women applied it is 25 times, times more lethal than VX on the palm of the hand. And it only takes between 2% and 20% of a drop on the cheek to kill somebody. They did not have to put much on him. Now, I suspect the uh, North Koreans did not get access to the Porton Downs research. I suspect they did their own human trials. All right, so what happened after that? Six days later, China announces a coal import cutoff. They are not going to import any more North Korean coal, and they say that's consistent with the UN Security Council resolution the previous November. Problem with that, of course, is they weren't even close to the cutoff required. They were up at about 50 or 60 percent. They were clearly furious at Kim Jong-un and North Korea. In 2016, 40% of North Korean exports were coal. So they were denying North Korea at least 30% of his hard currency in 2016. That was a big hit. Now, you can't expect North Korea to go and say no big deal, and they didn't. Back in the early part of March, they launched four Scud missiles. These were launched at Japan. And you got to say, okay, why would they launch at Japan? Because what they said was, we are furious at the Americans and the South Koreans for doing an exercise, so we're going to launch missiles at Japan. And you start going, "Uh, yeah, uh, why? And then they said, oh, yeah, and we're going to launch it as if we're launching at U.S. military bases in Japan. Well, there are six airfields the U.S. uses in Japan, The missile they launched has a 1,000-kilometer range. That range missile will only cover one of those six bases. And you start going, wait a minute, wrong target, not the range missile you'd need. And North Korea had missiles of the range they needed. What's going on? North Korea has always been very subtle about how they respond to China. They never mentioned China by name until recently, But if you run that range arc back in the other direction, a little more than half of the Chinese cities are covered by those missiles if they were fired at them. Remember, Kim Jong-il said, if we lose, I will be sure to destroy the earth, to include China. I think this was North Korea's subtle way of telling China Don't get too uppity with us. We can still deal with you without having to say it directly. So what happened from there? Well, politically, President Park was finally convicted and uh, and thrown out on the basis of uh, the impeachment. Eventually, a South Korean president was elected. Now note, South Korean elections, 60 days after an impeachment. You got 60 days. That is it. The uh, inauguration was the day after the election. Things go relatively quickly if you think about our elections. Um, what happened over that period of time? North Korea launched four missiles over that period of time. All of them failed. Now, North Korea doesn't just launch missiles to make a point of ob- operational capability. They launch them also because, well, Kim Jong-un is supposed to be a powerful leader But his economy is a disaster. His international politics are a disaster. So it's one way he can illustrate that he's godlike. He's got these missiles. He's one of only nine countries to have nuclear weapons. He's a powerful guy. But if he gets a lot of missile failures, that's not good. So then he starts complaining about China. China said in in, uh, April officially, but China almost never says anything really unofficially. China could bomb North Korea's nuclear facilities. That was a major affront to North Korea. And North Korea responded specifically criticizing China. And then in this month, North Korea, each weekend, the last three weekends, does a missile test. They all succeeded, fortunate for Kim Jong-un. So, China and North Korea's relationship at this stage is not really very good. doesn't mean China's going to change its attitude all that much necessarily, but there's more tension. All right, let me conclude by talking about the road ahead. U.S. has told North Korea, you've got to give up your nuclear weapons. Um, we'll negotiate, but you've got to meet certain conditions, but we haven't said what those conditions are. And we have said a military attack is on the table. It's a possibility. North Korea has said, we're not going to give up our nuclear weapons. Look, you guys, you missed history. U.S. made Gaddafi, the leader of Libya, give up its nuclear program. And once he did, the U.S. took Libya down, or at least let Libya take down his leader. We're not going to be so stupid and give up our nuclear program and have have a loss of our leadership. And so we're going to continue building weapons, We're going to handle our internal politics by demonstrating our capabilities. And we'd love to have an ICBM where we can target the United States because then we can decouple the U.S. from its regional allies. Think about how Charles de Gaulle operated in France when he became president and said France has to have their own nuclear weapons because we can't count on the U.S. to trade New York for Paris. Well, can... South Korea count on the U.S. to trade Seattle for Seoul. That's the kind of thing he wants to create as a quandary. What's China doing? Well, China appears to be doing more on the sanctions after the summit meeting with President Trump. But also last year, the president of China said he will not absolutely not permit war or chaos on the peninsula. Now, the Chinese president can't stop North Korea from launching ballistic missiles. So how in the world is he going to stop war or chaos? I think the answer to that is that would be ground troops in North Korea. That leads to a dicey situation. And finally, how does South Korea react? Well, South Korea's got a new president. He is a progressive president. He would like to trade compromise on a variety of issues for North Korean cooperation, And so far, North Korea's cooperation has been three missile launches. So not clear that North Korea is going to be willing to cooperate. And with that, I'll close and turn to our questioning effort.
2: Well, thank you so much, Bruce. That was a very thought-provoking discussion and unsettling. Um, I'd like to follow up on a few of the points that you made or at least hinted in, in in your discussion, starting with How did we get into this situation? The U.S. has been trying to affect change in one way or another for decades now. So how did we get into the mess we're in today?
1: And it's it's not just with President Obama for a long time. It's easier to kick the can down the road to say, well, we'll deal with it when the threat becomes really serious. Well, the threat has now become really serious. probably was really serious for at least 10 years. Uh, but there was always this potential of, well, we'll handle that one later. You know, you think about it in the in the 2008 time frame, we weren't prepared to attack North Korean ICBMs on launch pads because... North Korea could fire artillery into Seoul. North Korea only has about 14,000 artillery pieces. They fire artillery into Seoul, they're gonna devastate the city. The half, of the half of the South Korean population lives in Seoul or around it. Uh, be massive loss of life, but now we also have to deal with the artillery and the nuclear weapons. If we wait another 10 years, we're gonna have maybe 100 or 200 nuclear weapons in North Korea with an ability of them to put it on cities in the U.S sooner or later, you got to take it on. And I think President Trump recognizes it's now the later rather than the sooner.
2: Thank you. So I'd like to come back to the question of what are the options on the table for the Trump administration. But first, I'd like to delve a little bit further into what you see as the real motivation for North Korean leadership in pursuing nuclear weapons programs. We know regime survival is part of this. Are there other important factors?
1: So remember that Kim Jong-un has a very weak country in many regards. For example, his, his economic production is trivial. It's very small. South Korea's GDP is roughly about 20 times per capita what North Korea's GDP is. So we're not talking about an East Germany, West Germany, where I think the difference was two to four times. We're talking about a huge difference between the two countries. Politically, North Korea is a basket case. President Xi Jinping of China visited the South Korean president eight times since he came into office four years ago. He's never visited with his ally, North Korea. So the message to the North Korean elites is, well, North Korea is not an important country and This Kim Jong-un guy, he's not somebody I got to deal with. That's not good for a guy who's trying to be God. Um, And so it causes a problem for Kim Jong-un. He has to have something to demonstrate he's really empowered. Missiles and nuclear weapons are a key, but they also then allow him to deter US intervention. They allow him to influence events around the world. he is trying to have his real reach as a supreme leader of North Korea. Um, and so multiple reasons. You've got to take different actions as a result.
2: So that leads me to my last question. What are the options on the table for the Trump administration that they should be paying close attention to?
1: So you'll remember several weeks ago the U.S. fired 50 cruise missiles at a Syrian air base. Um, 50 cruise missiles, a lot of cruise missiles. A lot of them came down. How long was the airbase out of operation? Well, Between one and two days. Now, North Korean airbases are not like Syrian airbases. Almost all the aircraft are stored underground in caves. Even some of the runways are underground in caves. So that just as you're taking off, you're leaving the underground facility. You can't destroy an airfield in North Korea with 50 cruise missiles. I'm planning to write an op-ed at some point which is saying there is no such thing as a surgical strike against North Korea. You want to take out the missile and the nuclear weapons? Sure, you know, a 20-day campaign with most of the U.S. forces in the region, yeah, it might take a nick out of it. Of course, we got to know where things are, and in many cases, we don't know where things are. Where are their nuclear weapons? Where are their uranium enrichment facilities? We know where one is because they showed Dr. Hecker it in 2010. We don't know really for sure where the others are and how many there are, but Dr. Hecker says he's sure there's at least one other one. So those are complications on military options. Economic options, most of North Korea's economic activity, trade is with China, about 87%. China's not prepared to implement all of the sanctions that have been put by the UN, why not? China is fearful of North Korean refugees. They destabilize North Korea, you get refugees flooding into China. Now you may have this picture of Northeast China as Manchuria from World War II, the industrialized part of China. Today it's the Rust Belt of China. It's the worst off economic region in China. They want a whole bunch of North Korean refugees like they want a bullet in the foot. Would destabilize the region which already has several million ethnic Koreans. So they don't want any of that to happen. They have concerns about that kind of thing. Um, And so as you look at the situation, you then turn to, well, what are our alternatives? The alternative that I like is we have to remember, if Kim Jong-un is doing these tests for internal political purposes, why aren't we responding with internal political responses? i give you a simple example. I argue we ought to be telling North Korea, if you do another nuclear test, we are going to put hundreds of thousands of leaflets down on your nuclear facilities. Leaflets will have a very simple message. We are looking for defectors from your nuclear program. <laughs> You have to understand, South Korea has got these extremely elegant physics labs at their universities. You could come to the South and do work you'd never get to do in North Korea. You'll never die of radiation poisoning working at one of those labs or at our nuclear reactors, which we have 23 or 24 of in South Korea, compared to your one where most of the technicians are dead or seriously radiation poisoned by the age of 40. Um, and oh, by the way, if you come to South Korea, we'll give you half a million dollars. Now, that might not sound like all that big amount of money, except that's huge for North Koreans. You know, For most of us, that would be like being told you get 20 million. Um, so if we offered that and even one defector came to South Korea, that's a major loss of face for Kim Jong-un and now you're doing some leverage. Deterrence is about making him believe the cost of taking an action is greater than the benefit he gets. Why don't we do that? Second thing, though, is if we get one defector, we are going to learn a heck of a lot more about his nuclear program. You may remember that in the 1980s, the US thought the Soviet Union had given up their biological weapons program. Wrong, but couldn't have been further from the truth, but that's what we thought. In 1989, we got one senior defector from the program. In 1992, we got a second one. They told us where things were going on, what was going on, who the people were, and through a variety of inspection alternatives, we could go and verify all of that once we knew it was a problem. We need that kind of information on the North Korean program. And so Kim would also take the hit of he doesn't want internal information getting out, and now it gets out, that's not going to be good in terms of looking at his control.
2: Um, My question is, is there any evidence of any opposition within North Korea? In other words, any time you have this kind of a a government and that government, the the overbearing part of it, there becomes an opposition. Is there any evidence of that?
1: We don't see a lot of evidence of it. I I don't think that there's going to be an East German-like, uh, demonstrations of the common people. But there's huge dissonance in North Korea. The dissonance is called economic. I'm told by senior defectors that in the mid 1990s there was this huge famine in North Korea. Between one and three and a half million of a 20 million population died of starvation. You know, between five and almost 20 percent of the population dying of starvation. And Kim Jong-un, of course, had sufficient money to buy the food, or I sorry, his father did. They didn't decide to do that. They decided to spend that on their nuclear weapons. So really a serious problem there. Um, You've got to think about it in that kind of context. What happened? The senior elite said, wait a minute, in our political caste system, the lowest caste is called the hostile class. People at the bottom of the hostile class, some of them weren't starving to death. Some of them were actually living pretty well. And the elites are going, what the heck's going on? And the answer was, those people were being entrepreneurs. They were starting to trade and make money, being, you know, moving into capitalism almost. And uh, the elite said, wait a minute, up until now, everything we have has been due to the leader." You know, we get our food from the leader. If we get a refrigerator or a TV, we get it from the leader. If we did what they're doing, we could do our own. We could buy whatever we want. And, oh, by the way, they face a real risk dealing with the security people who they have to bribe. We know those security people. We can bribe them a lot more safely. So if you hear about stories of Pyongyang with restaurants and shops and 3 million cell phones... Yeah, it's true, but it's not about the victory of socialism. It's about the victory of capitalism in North Korea. And the defector who was talking about this said, look, if Kim Jong-un is suddenly dead, there will not be a Kim family successor. There will be a successor from outside the Kim family, and more than likely, he will be a capitalist. That doesn't mean he's going to be an American system but a Chinese-like capitalist system, perhaps.
2: So just as a quick follow-up to that, Bruce, um, what are your views on the stability of the current leadership?
1: So you look at the murder of his older half-brother, clearly paranoia. Why has he got paranoia? Well, I think he's sensing that he's not got the degree of control he would like to have. I mean, he's killed lots of senior leaders. And I've got to ask you, think about it. If you were a three-star North Korean general, would you want to be promoted? (laughs) Knowing that your predecessors had, many of them, been killed, their families thrown into the gulag? uh, Being promoted is not a good thing. And think of the normal military logic. How many of those people have to decide, I'm not prepared to live in this environment, before someone decides to do something about Kim Jong-un? In fact, may they have already tried, and we just don't know about it. Interesting, if you look at his guards, who are military guards, they carry this rifle, which has kind of got this large barrel, because it carries 100 rounds in it. Thank you very much. Th- th- this is great, and I really appreciate it. And I would love for you to disabuse me of a concept, but... Since since we only formed an
2: armistice at the end of the Korean War, technically many people say we
0: are still at a state of war with North Korea. And we have governments, Democrat and Republican, that talk about regime change at a drop of a hat without any consideration for it. Isn't this basically
2: at
1: the root of of this isolation and this paranoia that, that we have? And is this something that we need to really address? Sure. You have to ask, uh, why does North Korea want a peace treaty? Because they've been demanding a peace treaty for several years now, saying we've got to have it. I think the answer is that with the peace treaty, I think within five to ten years, the U.S. will no longer have troops in South Korea. Why would we want troops there? If there's a peace treaty, the war is over, the threat's gone. I think there'd be a lot of Americans in tight budget situations who would say, let's cut down on the cost here. And that's exactly what North Korea wants. If the US pulls out, you've got to remember, while we have almost 30,000 American troops in South Korea, there's only one combat brigade of about 4,000 troops there. Most of the troops there are logistical support They're there so that if we need to send troops to Korea, they can facilitate that happening. Once you pull that out, it's very difficult to send forces. And even today with what we have, we're talking about several months to get major forces into Korea. If we pull out from Korea, we're probably not going back, even if the North invades the South. And I think that's what the North wants. Part of the North Korean party constitution is their objective is conquest of the South because that's the only way North Korea can reunify the country with them in control. And that's their objective. It's, it's stated as their objective. They've never said they wouldn't do that.
2: I'm wondering if in the line of uh, military options, Mm-hmm. A, an initial strike that took out the command and control system would leave intact an effective war machine?
1: Mm-hmm. Good that is a really good question, which I'm sure many of my colleagues in the Pentagon would love to have the answer to. <laughs> <laughs> um, the problem here is North Korea really is good at denying information. Um, you know, How does North Korea plan to use nuclear weapons? Do they plan to have Kim Jong-un have a button on his desk that he pushes and launches all his nuclear weapons? I doubt it. I think he's got to call somebody who calls somebody who calls somebody to get down to the military base where they then push the button to launch the missiles. Um, So there's got to be some kind of system that we could interdict, that we could take down. I've thought for many years that the most effective deterrent we could offer against North Korea would be actually to say, look, we don't plan to destroy civilian populations in North Korea if North Korea uses a nuclear weapon, but Kim Jong-un will be dead as soon as we can make that happen. The leader will die and, you know, we'll take care of whatever happens from there. Because he's like a mafia family. He doesn't really care about anybody else. He can allow five to 20% of his population to starve to death, and that's no big deal. Um, so I think, you know, for example, when North Korea does a nuclear test, usually the leader of North Korea disappears from the public from anywhere between two days and two to four weeks. You know, he's just gone from public view. What's he trying to do? He's trying to avoid being targeted. I think the most effective deterrent we could make against North Korea ever using a nuclear weapon would be to choose one of those times. And if we knew where he was to tell North Korea, oh, by the way, at 2.30 in the afternoon of the day you did your nuclear test, you were exactly here. I think that would scare him. And it would allow us to avoid all of this, you know, running carrier groups in the area and so forth. If he knows he's on the line... That's, I think, the best deterrent we could have.
2: Uh, Can you talk a little bit about your assessment of other risks, including um, a sale of the nuclear technology to other uh, regimes or even uh, in a a situation where the country is destabilized and the the nukes uh, are, are loose and can't be secured?
1: Yeah. Really important question. So we know North Korea has sold ballistic missiles to a wide variety of countries, Iran, Syria, UAE, Vietnam, uh, Libya, Egypt. Um, we know that missiles went. We can document each of those cases. What we don't know nearly as much about is how much other stuff they're transmitting. You know, If you want to send a nuclear weapon to Iran, you can put it on an Iranian uh, commercial aircraft, fly it over China into Iran, and who's going to know that that's what they did unless somebody leaks? Um, And we do know that Iranian nuclear scientists have been at, I believe, every single North Korean nuclear test. So technology appears to already be transferring. Where did North Korea get its uranium enrichment technology? It got it from Pakistan, from Dr. AQ Khan, who helped provide the uranium enrichment capability to Pakistan. They cut a deal. Iran would, or I'm sorry, Pakistan would give North Korea uranium enrichment technology. North Korea would give Pakistan ballistic missile technology. Um, So those kind of trades have already been happening. President Bush used to call it an axis of evil. I always thought it was more appropriate to call it a cartel. It's, you know, it's a business arrangement where they're doing that. You think it's not all that serious, in 2005, I believe it was, there was a report that at a Syrian air base, there was a uh, missile base, there was an explosion that killed a bunch of Syrians and also killed a bunch of Iranians who were working with them. Over time after that, it came out they were loading chemical weapons on missiles, trying to master that, and something went wrong in the process. And then it became known, oh, by the way, there were also some North Koreans killed. Now, how much technology was transferred, we don't know. But I would have to guess it's non-trivial amount. And if you think about a collapse of North Korea, uh, if the government comes apart, you're going to have loose nukes potentially in many parts of North Korea with military leaders who know that if the South ever comes up and takes over, they're dead men. That's what their propaganda has told them for years. So nuclear weapon is their ticket out, sell it to the highest bidder and get away of getting out with some money for the future of their life. Um, we ought to be counter, countering that in terms of our information operations, but that's not happening as far as I know. Unification, the East German analogy, can you push a little bit more there? You've talked about the possibility of capturing elites in North Korea on whom Kim Jong-un depends for loyalty and support. Where do we, how do we do this? Where do the conversations take place? Do we have to rely on a lone defector, or is there some strategy and plan that's possible? Uh, you'll love to read my newest uh, RAND report, which is out for about a month, which talks about preparing the North Korean elites for unification. My commentary in that is to say, South Korea has always said they want to have a peaceful unification. But the North Korean elites believe that at unification, well, they've been told they're going to be murdered. So why would they ever agree to a peaceful unification if they think it's a disaster for them? My argument is, and I spent a lot of time talking with different North Korean elite defectors, you have got to be prepared as South Korean policy to tell the elites certain key things. It is now South Korean policy that we're not going to throw you in prison, or we're not going to do this, or we're not going to do that. Now, that's hard, but what happened in East Germany? One of my friends was part of a group in South Korea where the government said in South Korea in about 1992, we believe that this East German secret police could have put down the demonstrations that led to German unification. But we believe they chose not to do that. And so we want to know why. They sent my colleague to East Germany, to track down the former leaders of the Stasi, the secret police. And they all said that he talked to, oh yeah, we could have put him down. That was within our power. But they said two things really changed our mind. Number one, we had been told by West Germany for two decades that we would be given amnesty at unification. And we thought that would be a pretty good deal. But then more recently... West Germany was also talking about the pension that they were prepared to give us. And we looked at the pension that West Germany was prepared to offer and the pension we knew we were going to get from East Germany. And these senior guys, they were all within a few years of retiring. And they're also thinking, wait a minute, if we have a market economy, our kids, our grandkids are going to be so much better off. And they're thinking, this is a no-brainer. And he said they said, basically, We did enough so that the senior political leadership wouldn't have a shot, but not so much that we stopped it. Now, only got the one person who's told me that that I can confirm. Um, Don't know for sure that that's what the elite said. I've not had a chance to talk with them. But I think there's some basis for believing that. I believe South Korea ought to be carrying out a major campaign with the North Koreans telling them Look, here's what we're prepared to do. And my report outlines all of those kinds of things. You know, simple things like South Korea has 50,000 prison spaces and a judicial system designed to feed into that. There are probably somewhere between 3 and 5 million North Korean entrepreneurs who have done bribery or taken bribes. How are you going to deal with that many criminals at Unification? You know, you can't unless you want to take 100 years or so and you don't have the prisons to put them in to wait trial. So why don't you simply say, look, bribery is just a matter of something you got to do to do business in North Korea. That is not going to be considered a basis for legal action after unification unless certain, cons- certain things are really grievous in terms of what we see. Um, you've got to look at trades like that, and there are lots of others.
2: Can, just a, a quick follow-up. Can you talk a little bit more about strategies the South Koreans could use? You talked about dropping the leaflets. Mm-hmm. Are there other kinds of strategies?
1: Yeah, there are lots of broadcasts that go into North Korea. Um, I've talked, about, talked to a North Korean uh, student who was living up in Hamhung. If you're familiar, that's way up in the northeast, right kind of as North Korea turns to the east, um, long way from South Korea. And his house was in a zone where South Korean radio was received. And he started getting South Korean radio broadcasts and realized that a lot of the propaganda he was told, of course this is over a period of months and actually years, wasn't true. Um, Many North Koreans are realizing that. most popular thing from South Korea in North Korea? Soap operas. They love South Korean soap (laughs) operas on DVDs. Because they show a lifestyle that the people can't believe ever could happen for them and which they would love to have. And so you've got to try and transmit that kind of information into North Korea. Um, Transmit it however you can in a variety of ways. And I can tell you, North Korean defectors, almost all of those defectors feel passionately, especially former elites, We used to be in control of a lot of stuff. We used to have a lot of power. We want to do something to make our country better. Best way to do that, broadcast radio into the north, send leaflets into the north. They've even taken on the South Korean police who've tried to suppress those kinds of things because they think it's so important. And the South Koreans have been worried about North Korean reactions so trying to suppress it. I have a... About three random thoughts I wanted to just bounce off of you. One, um, President
0: Trump has been giving some sort of uh, mixed signals
1: to the North Koreans and between the comments and also the, I heard a third carrier group is heading offshore. Now, another idea is what has that X-37 spacecraft been doing for two years? And the third thing is, um, could you elaborate or update us on the mysterious uh, special train explosion off of uh, the Manchurian border? Okay. You're talking about the one several years ago on the train explosion? Okay. Um, So the carrier battle groups, um, the story that's come out, I believe, this afternoon is that there's a carrier battle group about to return to the U.S., the third one is going to replace it. So there won't be three there, there'll only be two. Um, and we don't know how long there will be two. Um, look, with North Korea, most people say with North Korea, let's just relax all the military stuff, stop American training, and so forth. Kim Jong Un's going to say, wow, I got a great victory over the Americans in that. He's going to soak that up and broadcast it. To convince him that he's got to deal with things and compromise, you've got to convince him of strength. And so I think that's the direction the president is trying to go. Now think also of President Trump. He's a businessman, not a politician. politician wants to tell you, what I'm going to do is this. Businessmen don't do that, as I understand it. Businessmen don't want their competition to know what their strategy is going to be. They want to keep their their competition, you know, kind of trying to guess. And I think we may have missed that pattern of the Trump administration. They want to make North Korea think that they can't be sure what's gonna happen, and so they're gonna have to compromise. Um, So I don't think that a lot of the statements about a military attack, I think those are out there as a, let's not give them a single option that they can focus on. Um, X-37, I really don't know what it's been doing. I can't tell you, but let's talk about interceptor launch. Tuesday of this week, U.S. launched an ICBM from Kwajalein. We fired a missile interceptor from Vandenberg Air Force Base, and it killed the ICBM, the warhead. Now, think about this. This is a bullet, bigger than a bullet, but not a whole lot, that's flying in space from the ICBM. This is a bullet from the interceptor that are flying to meet in space, closing ballpark about 10 kilometers per second, per second for kilometers, and the two of them hit each other? Because you gotta hit. If you're close, it doesn't count. It's not explosive, it's gotta hit. Um, that was a very important demonstration for the world. We'd never done that before with an ICBM, which is much faster, more difficult to kill. Now, not a perfect test. I mean, the, the reality is that test, you could have put decoys up there, made it harder. We had to prove that we could at least do it, and then we can take on harder tests. Um, in terms of, well, your, fi- your final piece again was the? Special training. Train. Oh, uh, yeah. So, Several years ago, there was a train that exploded in North Korea. Turns out it exploded just after a train with Kim Jong-il on it had passed through a train station. Looked like it was an assassination attempt. North Koreans took it so seriously that they took down the cell network that existed in North Korea at the time because they thought the explosion was probably triggered by the cell network. So they disassembled it. They didn't want to take that chance with their leader. Um, And the timing was was really pretty close. I mean, it looked like one part of it was delayed. I don't remember all the details. So (laughs) there have been the appearance of cases. You go back to 94, 95, 96, there are recorded several probable assassination attempts against Kim Jong-il. There have been cases like that. We don't know as much about Kim Jong-un at least one, though, that's been reported that's relatively credible.
2: Hi. Sorry. Um, I just wanted to quickly follow up on a point made earlier about um, the peace treaty and about uh, the regime change threats that apparently they've received. Are you, are, is the argument here that all this machinations going on in North Korea is because they don't have a peace treaty with the, with the South Koreans? Or, or is it this? I mean, in other words, there's motivations that presumably go be well beyond the question of a formal peace treaty. Mm-hmm. So is that, I mean, that was the argument, I guess, earlier. And I don't hear
1: the U.S. actually threatening the regime change the way. No. 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 We're not, we're not threatening regime change uh, actively. Now, that could be the direction President Trump goes, but we're not actively threatening that. South Korea is. South Korea came out in September last year after the fifth nuclear test and said if North Korea ever uses a nuclear weapon, we will execute our Korean massive punishment and retaliation option, which is they will devastate whatever part of Pyongyang that Kim Jong-un is located in, assuming they get it right. Uh, They'll take him out and take out whatever is around him. Now, a lot of Americans will say, well, a lot of innocent Koreans will die then in North Korea. Uh, the, The South Korean usual response is those people are all members of the government, they're elites, If we take them out, the country becomes ungovernable. And so they don't view that as a civilian impact. And you also have to remember, if you're really talking about that, the only way to really do that would be with a nuclear weapon. And the missile that we've allowed South Korea now to build has a 550-kilometer range, a one-ton warhead. Sounds a lot like a second-generation nuke. So South Koreans are moving in that direction. Uh, the U.S. has not. The U.S. has not said that, but how would we deal with the collapse of the regime? Good question.
0: I'm going to go back to the mobile mm-hmm. launchers mm-hmm. and the and the solid fuel. Sure. It looks like those could be launched within 30 minutes, and in terms of uh, us trying to hit them when we identify them, that gives a very small window mm-hmm. of, Any thoughts on how that changes the balance of power?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Back about six or seven years ago, I had a uh, German rocket scientist who was a fellow for me at RAND. And he was looking at the North Korean missile program um, and trying to determine how they would operate. So what did he do? He went to the East Germans who had operated... Russian missiles like Scuds, uh, and asked the East Germans who had done that, how did you operate your missiles? Um, the East Germans were in a position where they could erect even a liquid-fueled missile, and not give a lot of visibility to what was happening. It would be in a forest or some other place where it would be obscured. You know, done with the the missile, the back end of the missile out a tunnel and, you know, raised up so that they could then put the missile on it, but it would look like it was part of the tunnel. So they were pretty good at obscuring that against the U.S. capabilities in that period. Concern is North Korea might do the, try to do the same kind of thing. Um, and you got to ask, what does it take to do total surveillance of North Korea to look for anything that looks like a launcher? I don't believe that our intel capabilities are quite there yet.
0: Thank you, Bruce and Laura. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org/events.